We're going to read from Acts 10, and so if you wouldn't mind, please stand for the reading of God's word. Chapter 10, starting in verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continuously to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come, uh, come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have been ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon a tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel spoke, when the angels who spoke to him was departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the, on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance, he saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that was common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask Simon, who was called Peter, his lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you and to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. This is God's word. You may be seated. All right. There's a big passage tonight. We've got a lot to cover and not as much time. So we're going to jump in here. But before I do, the pantry is not going to be open this week, but there is lettuce and broccoli, I think, is available. 
So go grab some afterwards. And then if you're going to camp, stay for a volunteer meeting. Okay, I think those are all the add-on announcements. Um, so at the beginning of Acts, the beginning of this book, the Lord told the disciples in Acts 1, verse 8, he says that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's how this book opens. And it has been an outward progression ever since the opening of this book. It's been pushing outward this whole time. The gospel is spreading. It's advancing. It's, it's taking uh, territory, so to speak. In our passage tonight, the gospel is going to continue to spread outward. It's going to start with an unlikely, seemingly unlikely conversion of a Roman centurion named Cornelius. This again, as we looked a few weeks ago at the conversion of Saul, who would become Paul, this is a story of conversion. But it's important to st state at the beginning here, it's, it's almost... Equally, a story of conversion for Peter. We'll look at this here in a minute. For us, I think this is a picture, this is a, a parable or a story, a lesson of how to, how to be aware of and outwardly focused to people who are vastly different than us, completely opposite. How to be led by the Spirit, how to put aside cultural or social biases, prejudices for the sake of the gospel. That's what's happening in this story. Remember, in the gospels, Jesus, and, and we looked at this a few weeks ago, Nikolai looked at this, Jesus told Peter that he had the keys of the kingdom. He, he'd given him the keys of the kingdom. And we've watched already how Peter has sort of unlocked the gospel at Pentecost, and he preached, and thousands came. And then in chapter, I think it was 9, he goes to the Samaritans, and the gospel's unlocked in Samaria. Now again, we're going to see as how these keys are used as Peter takes the gospel, and it spreads. Peter has responded Rightly, now, just like the Lord, just like a disciple of Jesus, he's responded to sickness, he's, he's confronted death, he's gone to Samaria, or dealt with Samaritans, and now, now he faces probably one of the, the most challenging scenarios for Peter. Think, how is he going to deal with this internal social, racial prejudice that he's grown up with and been entrenched in. I think Luke, in writing this, writing Acts, hints at, at a beginning of an openness here. The way he concludes chapter 9, chapter 9, verse 43, says that Peter stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon. Oh, by the way, he's a tanner. 
that's kind of, you could pass that over real quick, but there's a lot of implications there for a Jewish person. It's a little bit of information here is that tanners worked with dead bodies, dead animals, to make leather. And as such, they were regarded as ceremonially unclean. This was not where they would want to hang out. They were regarded as unclean. And Peter seemingly disregards this. He goes and spends many days at Simon the Tanner's house out by the coast. So it seems to me like he's already in the state of mind to begin to embrace those who are outside, those who are pushed to the margins. But this chapter is going to deal directly with a deep-seated cultural prejudice between Jews and Gentiles that has been established now at this point in history for a long time. And it's not like it's solved here. If you, you'll pay attention to the way Paul writes. Much of his writing is dealing with the same issue. How do you deal with this divide? I think it's probably hard for us to actually grasp this divide, to understand how immense this gulf between the Jews and Gentiles were. Even men who were considered God-fearers, who wanted to serve Yahweh, who, who realized that Yahweh was the one true God, there was massive division. Not necessarily because the Old Testament prescribed that. The Old Testament didn't, uh, as such, lay out such a harsh um, divide. The reality is that alongside this clear word through the Old Testament about uh, the hostile nations, it equally affirms that God has a purpose for them, that God longs for the nations. The fact that he chose the, the Jewish people as a, as a family and a, and a nation is that he intended that through them the whole world would be blessed. His intention was to reach the nations. The psalmists, the prophets, they foretold a day when the Messiah would inherit the nations. That the Lord's servant would be their light. That the nations would flow to the Messiah, that they would come to him, to, to his house, and that God would pour out his spirit on all flesh. But the tragedy is that the people of Israel had twisted that doctrine of election, and they had turned it into some form of favoritism. They became filled with racial pride with hatred. They despised the Gentiles. There's many writings of them that they called the nation's dogs. They developed traditions and rituals to set fences and keep guards away that they could not have any interaction with the nations, with the Gentiles. No devout Jew in Peter's day would ever enter the home of a Gentile. 
They would not engage at that level. Not even of a God-fearer. They would not interact, even if they were invited into the home. So entrenched was this cultural prejudice that it would take years, ultimately. Paul would have to wrestle this through, even in the church. Do they have to be circumcised? Do they need to take on our customs, our practices? This was an entrenched thing. What happens in this chapter is so important that Luke records it effectively three times, the telling of this story. Twice fully in his own words, and then Peter later in chapter 11 will retell this. What happens here sets the stage for what's going to happen in the rest of the book, in the rest of the church age. It sets the, the course of action here. The question that we have to ask in chapter 10 as we're looking at this, the main question here is, is how is God going to deal with Peter? How is God going to be able to take this message of the Messiah out to the nations, to the Gentiles? How is he going to take this people with such a, a cultural bias and cultural prejudice and get them to look out to the nations? Let's look at this passage for a little bit. Verse 1. We're just going to kind of walk through this whole story, and I'm going to try to go relatively fast here. So if you have your Bibles, keep it open to Acts 10. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion, of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. Okay, so the setting here is Caesarea. This is up on the coast, 30 miles-ish north of Joppa. Caesarea was predominantly a Roman city on the shores of the Mediterranean. It was the capital for the Roman governor in a military city. This was a Roman stronghold. Cornelius was a centurion. What does that mean? I think often there's so many centurions in the Bible that we kind of, we lose grip of what that means. He was an officer of the Roman Empire, of the Roman army. Any patriotic Jew of that day would clearly have disliked him. He was of the Italian cohort. History tells us that two, uh, sorry, 32 of these Italian cohorts were spread throughout the Roman Empire. They were made up of Italian volunteers who were considered to be of the most loyal to the Roman Empire. This was a loyal servant to the oppressor of Israel. The patriotic Jewish people would have nothing to do with him, would have seen him clearly as an enemy,
centurions were trained killers. Their job was to use the hundred men who were under their command to do whatever the emperor wanted. They would crush foreign invasions. They would eradicate rebellions. It would be a Roman centurion who would lead the effort to crush the city of Jerusalem in a few years from now in the story. Herod likely sent a centurion and his men to Bethlehem at the, at the year of Jesus' birth to kill all the boys under two. That's the kind of man a centurion was known to be. To be a Roman centurion was also, history tells us, to be, in essence, a, a, uh, a worship leader of the emperor. They were known to function almost like pagan priests, leading their soldiers in worship of the empire and the Roman gods. But here, we see that Cornelius is a devout man who feared God. Cornelius is a God-fearer. Something had happened in his deployment to Judea. He had seen the picture of this God, Yahweh, this one true God, the loyalty of the faithfulness of the Jewish people, the peculiarness had somehow won him over to the reality of the one true God. And so Cornelius was a God-fearer. He prayed always to God. He gave alms generously to those who were in need. Can you imagine something that would have had to take place in a Roman centurion like that? The power of the peculiar, peculiarity of the Jewish people? Something had caused this man to think twice about his worship. Cornelius fell into the category of what the Jews called a God-fearer, which essentially means uh, that he, he had devotion to the God of Israel. He worshipped the God of Israel. He was sympathetic and supportive to the Jewish faith. All the way and up until the point where he would not take circumcision or adopt their lifestyle of separation. Sympathetic, but not fully embracing. The Jewish people had respect and appreciation for these God-fearing Gentiles. We know that he was highly respected by the Jewish people. And yet, they could not share their real life or their homes or their stories with them. They were held at arm's distance. They were kept separate because ultimately they were still, in fact, Gentiles, dogs. They were not Jewish converts. They definitely did not share table fellowship. They were kept from any corporate worship. But Cornelius prayed to God always. I think it's clear that Cornelius had a relationship with the Lord. He prayed to the Lord. 
And at the same time, he was barred from any of the mainstream worship. There was no option for him to go to the temple. No option for him to participate in the synagogues. This should draw back memories of the Ethiopian eunuch, remember that we looked at, that was wanting to understand the scriptures, but was barred from entering into fellowship, barred from entering worship. Verse 3, about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in to sit and say to him, Cornelius. He stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. A couple things here to just point out. We're going to see again tonight, just like with Saul, this scenario of matching visions. Remember with Saul, there was, he had this vision, he's knocked off the donkey, and there's a correlating vision to the disciple to go and meet him. Similarly here, there's this correlating vision scenario that happens. So Cornelius has a vision. He sees an angel. This pair of visions begins with this Roman centurion seeing an angel. About the ninth hour, we're not told specifically here that Cornelius was praying, but we know he was a man of prayer, and he says later on that he was praying. He's praying. What's interesting is the ninth hour was the customary time for a Jew to be praying. He's practicing the way of the Jewish people. He's praying just like they were. And he saw clearly a vision of an angel, not a dream, and it didn't phys- this angel didn't physically appear. He had a vision. Cornelius, the angel, calls him directly, calls him by name. That's significant. The angel responds, calls him directly. It's also significant to look at Cornelius' response was proper. The healthy dose of fear of heaven and this being that was there in front of him, he's afraid. I think that shows truly that he understands the God that he's worshiping. He's told to send for Simon, who is called Peter. It's probable that Cornelius had no idea who Peter was. He had to be, this angel had to be pretty specific. Go to Joppa. There's a guy who used to be called Simon. He's now Peter, and he's staying by the coast with this guy named Simon, who he's a tanner. Pretty specific. Go find him. He knows, Cornelius knows that he needs to follow through here. He needs to do what the Lord tells him to do. The angel says that Simon, who's called Peter, will tell you what you must do. 
So God sends an angel in a vision to this guy, this Roman centurion, Cornelius. But he uses a man 30 miles away to present the gospel to him. This is important. I've read stories of this scenario still happening, of Muslims in locked, closed countries who have dreams and visions of Jesus coming to them and saying, go to this house and ask them about Jesus. And they do that. They knock on the door, and there's a church service happening in secret, and they hear the gospel. This stuff still happens. But it's important, and I think just shows the value of of our presenting the gospel, that the angel could have shared the good news. The angel could have told Cornelius the story of the Messiah and of the cross and of the resurrection. But 30 miles down the coast, there was a man Peter, full of prejudice, junk, normal Peter. The Lord wanted to use him to present the gospel. He wanted Peter to share the gospel, to lead him in the way of discipleship. Verse 7. When the angel who spoke with him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. Having relayed everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Apparently, the faith of Cornelius was contagious, and there were people in his sphere of influence in his household under his command who also honored the God of Israel. So what happens next is sort of the flip side of the coin of this two-sided vision. The Lord's going to come to Peter. It's Peter's turn. Verse 9. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. These two men, 30-ish miles apart, they have to be brought together somehow. So while Joppa has everything going on there, there's trade in this port city happening, Caesarea with all its politics and military, the Lord's at work putting these two guys together. The gospel will spread. And he will move the chess pieces on the board to bring the gospel forth. He's going to send an angel to Caesarea, and he's going to bring this trance, this ecstatic experience to Peter in Joppa. So Peter goes to the housetop to pray, the rooftop to pray. Culturally, there's a patio on on the rooftop, and Peter goes up around noon, the sixth hour, to pray. 
find it interesting that it was around noon. This was not a customary hour of prayer for the Jewish people. I think this says something, if you take a step back and just think about that real quick, it says something about the prayer life of the early church, the prayer life of Peter. He wasn't just restricted to the customary hours of prayer. He was seeking the Lord. He wasn't simply fulfilling a ritualistic habit, but there was a genuine desire in him to seek God. He was a man of prayer. He longed to spend time with God. And he's going to receive a vision here. The the scripture calls it a trance. I don't know about you, but I love the way this is in Acts. We're, we're, we're all these different visions and experiences and God showing up and speaking to people and angels coming. I don't think there's a formula here, but I do want to point out, I mean, it's, it's 100% up to God how he works. But I do just want to point out, both of these guys were people of prayer. Both of them regularly, continually were in prayer. I think this left them in a posture that they were open to hearing God's voice. They were open to receiving what God wanted to speak to them. This is an area I feel like we we can grow in here in our community. This posture of prayer, personal devotion in prayer. So he's on the rooftop, he's praying, and he becomes hungry. I love Peter. <laughs> Anybody else sympathize with this? You sit down to pray. <laughs> Gosh, I'm hungry. Distracted. Start thinking about, what am I going to eat? I think this often happens, right? Sit down, so open your Bible, you're going to read, you're going to pray. You get something, a distraction, a text message, a notification. Your stomach starts growling. However, here, God used that very distraction. He used Peter's hunger to speak to him. And Peter falls into a trance. Verse 11 says this. He saw the heavens opened and something like a giant sheet Descending, being let down from its four corners upon the earth. It's a vision, a trance that he's seeing. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, and there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter said, By no means, Lord. I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. God takes, in this vision, this trance, God takes what Peter thought to be true, what he thought he knew, he takes it and he flips it upside down. Flips it on his head. Peter thought he understood the law. He thought he understood how things worked. And in this vision, it gets flipped up. He, he knew he wasn't supposed to eat unclean animals. For the Jew, it was very much, you know the phrase, you are what you eat. 
This is how they lived for the Jewish people. They had a history of practicing a very distinct diet, kosher food laws. And we all know, like, no pork, um, no shellfish. Lots of, lots of things happening here. Even today, the kosher food industry is huge. There's a lot of people who, who choose to eat this way. Dairy and meat can't touch. No cheeseburgers. Typically, a modern Jew would actually have two sets of utensils, separate. One drawer for cooking utensils, for dairy, and one for meat. They took it to an extreme. But this was the way they ate. This was their practice. God gave the Israelites this specific diet, these laws of how they were to eat, only clean things. It was given to set them apart as unique, as separate, as holy amongst the nations, as a special people. God gave the Israelites this differentness to mark them out, set them apart. You can read all about it in Leviticus. How many of you guys love Leviticus? Leviticus chapter 11. I'll just read a couple of these. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, this is Leviticus 11, 1 through 3, saying to them, speak to the people of Israel, saying, these are the living things that you may eat among the animals that are on the earth. Whatever parts of the hoof and whatever parts the hoof and is cloven-footed and chews the cud among the animals you may eat. Okay. The rest of Leviticus 11 is going to go through very specific scenarios spelling out what kind of anim animals the Israelites could and couldn't eat. We all know about pork. No bacon, but also camels. Camels are specifically earmarked as unclean. Also seafood, much of seafood. No shellfish. Essentially, you've got clean food, which would be cows, chicken, sheep, salmon. Also things like locust, deer, and unclean, pigs, Horses, camels, eel, lobster, crab, vultures, bats, dogs. Unclean. No dogs, no bats. Darn. <laughs> but you can eat bugs. Grasshoppers, locusts, those are good. Okay. The Jewish people had followed these restrictions for over a thousand years at this point. They had practiced this as a way of living. They had marked themselves out as separate. And you hear in this trance, the voice says to Peter, rise, Peter, kill and eat. This obviously went against Peter's commitment as a Jew. He says he's never eaten anything except for kosher food. He's only eaten clean food. He says, by no means, Lord. 
Peter's response in typical Peter fashion, by no means, Lord, is both crazy, it's absurd, but it's also typical for us. He said no to God. He told no to God. Peter has a bad habit of saying no to Jesus. In Matthew 16, he rebuked Jesus when Jesus foretold his, his death. He said, may it never be. In John 13, he again rebukes Jesus, tells Jesus, no, you can't wash my feet. And here, he says, no. Compare Peter's response, by no means, Lord, with Cornelius' response. Cornelius said, what is it, Lord? Peter said, by no means, Lord. Peter had pretty much put God like in this box. He'd limited him to the only way he thought he could function. And God's shaking everything up to prepare the way for the gospel to go out to the Gentiles. Peter's saved. He's a disciple of Jesus. He's following the Lord. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember, he spoke in tongues. He preached that, that gospel at Pentecost. This is Peter. And at the same time, this is what I love about Peter, is Peter's Peter. <laughs> He's a little brash, a little hard-headed sometimes. God didn't use Peter because he was perfect. He didn't use Peter because he had it all figured out, or he knew everything. He used him, ultimately, in this situation, he's in the right direction at the right time. So the voice comes a second time, and a third, to Peter. The same scenario repeats. What God has cleansed, what God has declared clean, you must not call common. Three times this happens. The Old Testament, especially as you read through Leviticus, there's a clear distinction. You have holy and you have common. You have clean, and you have unclean. Something holy can be made common when it came in contact with something that was common. That commonality was contagious. And could only be made holy again through a process of cleansing. Something was made holy, it was called consecrated. When something was made common, it was called desecrated. I think this is really important to this story. If it was just about the dietary laws, clean and unclean would have sufficed. 
But there's a distinction here between clean and common. Common has to do with whether something is holy or not. Holy, fit for worship. Common, not fit for worship. At this point, Peter believed God's speaking about food. He's perplexed, and shortly he's going to see that there's another point here. There's, there's something else that's happening here. This happens three times, and the thing was taken up into heaven, verse 16. God repeated this three times. Peter, again, has a history of needing three times for a thing to sink in. Peter now understood the importance. He's probably hearing roosters crowing as he heard it for the third time. Verse 17. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed, it's a good posture to be in when the Lord gives you a trance or a vision, inwardly perplexed, as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon, Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. While Peter was pondering this vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise, go down, and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. Peter's perplexed. He's pondering this vision. He doesn't fully understand what is going on. That's not a bad place to be. That's probably the right place to be. To have the Lord so mess with you that you have to sit and ponder for a while and wrestle with, what are you doing, God? I think it's also a vision, or it's also a hint for us that this is not a vision specifically about dietary rules. That's not really what the Lord's trying to do here. There's three times Peter hears not to call common what God has called clean, and three men are at the gate waiting for Peter. The men Cornelius sends are standing at the gate. They're standing at the gate. This is a symbolic posture of the way the Jews and Gentile relationship worked. The Jew has the inside access and the Gentile is left standing at the gate, outside at a distance with many fences and gates put in the way to keep them far. The Spirit says to him, the Spirit says, go. Previously, in this vision, simply said a voice, but now it, Luke wants to be very clear. The Holy Spirit is speaking to Peter. He's telling him clearly, three men are looking for you. Get up, go down, and accompany them 
without hesitation. Don't even hesitate. I have sent them. At this point, God has told Peter that the visitors, he hasn't told Peter that the visitors are Gentiles. He just says, go without hesitation. Normally, there's no way Peter would associate with these Gentiles. He would say, not so, Lord. But God surprises Peter, so to speak. He gets to the gate, and he immediately realizes these are Gentiles. He, he would know. But all Peter needed to know was that the Holy Spirit said, I have sent them. I have sent them. The, the Spirit of God had led them. And he was commanded to go without hesitation. Verse 21. Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you were looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the Jewish nation, has directed a, uh, was directed by a holy angel to send to you to come to his house to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day, he rose and went away with them. And some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. Peter must have been shocked when he opened the door. He must have been shocked when he sees these two Roman servants and a soldier at his door. But God said, go without hesitation. They, they came with an invitation. They wanted Peter to come. The messengers wanted him to come to Cornelius. And Peter responds with an invitation. He invites them in. He brings them into his house. Well, his friend's house. He invites them in to be his guests. You can see already there's a change happening in Peter's heart, the way he invites them in. He didn't coldly give these Gentiles a room off to the side. He didn't go out to the street and meet them and say, I think if you go down there, there's an inn. They might take people of your kind. He invites them in with hospitality to be his guests. He showed radical hospitality. There's no way an Orthodox Jew would have sat down at the same table as these guys. Would not have happened. They would not have had table fellowship. It would have been forbidden. By entertaining these Gentile guests, Peter's going against all the customs that he had grown up. 
But he's not going against the word of God. He's not going against the intention of those customs. I have to imagine that at this moment, all the stories of the Lord's heart towards the nations are flooding Peter. He's, he's putting the dots together. He's connecting the dots. Oh, yeah. Remember when Jesus said in the parable to go and get the people from the highways and the byways? And remember when he said, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? Remember all the stories and the psalms that David, talked, David wrote where they're talking about the nations coming before God? The next day he rose and went away with them. Some of the brothers accompanied him from Joppa. Centuries before this, another Jew had come to Joppa. He had a message from God. He had been commissioned to bring a message to the Gentiles. Jonah, the prophet, took a ship from Joppa and refused to follow in obedience to bring the message of repentance to the Gentiles, to a Gentile nation. Jonah ran from God's call. He thought he could get away from the Lord. He didn't share God's heart for the lost and for the nations. But here, Peter is willing to re-examine his tradition, his prejudice, his heart posture. He's, he's willing to weigh it against the word of God, to hold it against the scripture, and to find God's heart for a lost people. Some people are more like Peter, and others probably are more like Jonah. Let's be honest. So what happens next? I, I need to probably speed it up here. Cornelius was waiting for them. They arrive. Cornelius is expecting them. He had a lot of faith. He believed that Peter would come. He believed that the good news would come. He gathers his entire social network, his entire household, which, which encompassed everybody who was under his command effectively. Verse 24. And the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up. I too am a man. In a way, Peter and Cornelius honored each other. Peter displayed humility by laying down his prejudice and coming in the first place. And here, Cornelius, who's captain of Caesar's men, falls on his face before Peter. John Stott says, Peter refused both to be treated by Cornelius as if he were God and to treat Cornelius as if he were a dog. He displayed humility. This is just what Paul would later write. He says in, 
uh, that we are to honor one another with brotherly love. To not think of ourselves more highly than we ought. Peter went in. I'm going to skip, just jump through here a little bit. Peter goes in to Cornelius' household. Peter enters the house of a Gentile. He enters this house and he showed that his heart had been changed. It's Peter here who had been converted. He now sees that this habit of keeping the Gentiles at arm's length was not in the heart of God. Peter, the great apostle, is a disciple. He is still learning, still being formed and shaped into the image of his master. He's not a job finished. So what happens is he's, he presents the gospel. He preaches the gospel. Verse 34 and onward. For the sake of time, you can read it on your own. Notice, though, that when Peter preaches to the Gentiles here, it's essentially the same as when he preached to the Jews. There's no distinction here in the gospel he presents. He presents the person and the work of Jesus, always emphasizing the resurrection, the power of the resurrection of Jesus and our responsibility before God in light of all that has happened. He didn't have one sermon for one group of people and a whole different sermon for the Gentiles. His goal, his stated purpose, was that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Everyone who believes, the sermon is brief, and it concludes with that statement that everyone who believes, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, everyone who believes, maybe for us today, Republican or Democrat, American or Frenchman, I don't know, um, whatever, rich or poor, whoever believes, the gospel is for them. They can receive forgiveness of sin. Verse 44, while Peter was saying these things, in the middle of his sermon, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the words. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. As if they needed another confirmation of what was happening here, we have Pentecost 2.0. Just like in the middle of Peter's sermon in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit falls and many Jews are speaking in tongues. Here, in the middle of his sermon, as he's presenting the gospel with clarity and definition to the Gentiles, to the dogs, the Spirit falls, and they're speaking in tongues. Pentecost 
2.0. They hear them speaking in tongues and exhorting God, extolling God. Peter declared, can anyone withhold baptism, withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? He commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to remain for some days. What a story of the gospel going forth, the gospel advancing in an uncomfortable way for Peter. What do we do with this? Where do we, how do we apply this? I think there's three things, and I'm going to do them quickly here. Three things that I just want to highlight. Verse 20 said, he went with no hesitation. With no hesitation, he did what the Lord told him to do. When God's leading, when he's moving, prompting, the only option is quick obedience. We tell our kids that delayed obedience is disobedience. It's true here, too. Move without hesitation when the Lord is leading you towards those who are on the outside, far from him. Second thing, verse 23. Just like Peter shows hospitality, I think we can open our homes. We can practice this way. He invites them to be his guests. And then he journeys with them. He shared table fellowship with them. Rosaria Butterfield wrote a book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. I recommend it. She says this, radical ordinary hospitality shows the skeptical post-Christian world what authentic Christianity looks like. The point here is that our home is not our own. It's a tool that the Lord has given us for the sake of the gospel. But there is a difference between hospitality and entertainment. I just kind of want to park there for a minute. As I was talking about this with Naomi earlier, she pulled up a quote from a book by Christine Hoover called Church Plant, The Church Planting Wife. She says this, Hospitality is a great avenue for establishing relational connections between, uh, because inviting others into our home is the first step towards inviting them into our hearts. Unfortunately, instead of using hospitality as an extension of friendship, we tend to put too much pressure on ourselves to create the perfect home or meal for our guests. Should we only invite people into our homes when we finally get our lives perfectly together? Our culture's version of hospitality involves beautiful events with beautiful decor and beautiful people. It's too bad that we often believe that this is true hospitality and therefore do not invite others into our homes. When we don't practice hospitality regularly, we miss opportunities to hear people's stories, to be known, to display 
and experience a tangible gospel. We miss these opportunities because we worry about the size of our space, the decor in our home, the cleanliness of our bathrooms, the, or our ability to cook. Hospitality is not about setting a scene or a table. It's about connecting over a meal, opening ourselves to relationships. It says, here is my carpet covered with Cheerios. Several definitely smashed. Here's the dirty dishes in the sink. Here's a pretty basic meal or takeout. Here's my rambunctious children. Here I am, and you are welcome into my home and my heart. Be kindly affectionate to one another in brotherly love, distributing to the needs of the saints, giving hospitality, Paul says. Thirdly, just as Peter pulled Cornelius up as he bowed trying to worship him, I think we need to display humility. We have to be honest with who we are and where we're at, with our struggles, with the reality of our life. Be honest with the issues before us. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. The gospel is advancing. It is moving today, still, progressing, saving souls, bringing many unto faith. It's going to happen. It's happening even in our city, in our county, that we would have this posture that we would live humbly, that we would show hospitality, that we would move in obedience without hesitation. Let's pray. And I think we're going we're gonna to take communion after this first song here. Father, we thank you for the gospel. I thank you for the good news of the resurrected Messiah. God, help us to be a gospel people, that we would continually be formed and reshaped and reformed by the gospel, that we would practice the way of Jesus, that we would live this stuff out that we would invite people into our home, that we would share generously of everything that we have, that we would display the reality of what you have done on the earth. In Jesus' name, amen.